0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I'm in a good mood this week, and it's mostly because of you all. Last week, I moved to a new loft in DTLA, and I didn't think I would be able to get a podcast episode up. But I was able to eke it out, and you all... You're so amazing. You all rushed to download the episode almost immediately. And last week's podcast, I was ranked right above Oprah on the iTunes top 200. And I was like, holy crap, like this thing is doing Oprah numbers. I was quite pleased. So thank you very much for everyone who tuned in. I don't even listen to my own podcast. The sound of my voice is so grating to me. I guess y'all like the voice, but I just wanted to say thank you. This podcast is doing well. It's not because I download or stream. It's because of y'all. So thank you very much for tuning in. It's been a hard week. John Lewis, congressman, civil rights icon, American hero. I feel like every title that is given to him isn't enough to encompass all the man that he is. I took that news like somebody in my family had died. Like I was hurt. Hurt. I met John Lewis a couple times. My first encounter with him was, I guess this was the early 2000s. It was a fancy to-do dinner. And his book, Walking in the Wind, had just come out. I knew he was a congressman. I knew he'd been part of the civil rights movement, but I didn't know the details. I knew he marched on the bridge during Bloody Sunday. I didn't know the police cracked his skull during that encounter. But he had his first book coming out. And they put it in the gift bags. And you know me, like I read voraciously, like I read anything. Next day, on my way to work, had to take the train. I grabbed the book and I just started reading. Fascinating. Cover to cover. It's a big, thick book, like Bible thick. And I read it in about three days. Like I I couldn't put it down. It was fascinating. If you don't have the bandwidth to read the book right now and you want to know more about John Lewis, he has a great documentary out. It came out this year, maybe a month, six weeks ago. Tops. Good trouble. That was one of his famous sayings. He encouraged people to get in good trouble. Trouble with a purpose. John Lewis, United States Congressman, and upstanding man, was arrested like 40 plus times. All out there marching for civil rights and the betterment of America and the empowerment of black folk. Ah, Gosh, rest in peace, John Lewis. On the same day that John Lewis died, Reverend C.T. Vivian also passed away, equally as important as John Lewis, but perhaps outside of Atlanta, not as well known. And I knew who he was like as a name, but I didn't know the details. He was another giant in the civil rights movement. He was a lieutenant for Martin Luther King Jr. And MLK described him as the best preacher to ever live. He marched in Selma. He participated in the Freedom Rides. In addition to tons of other protests, very often people tend to talk about the the most known protests, but C.T. Vivian had more than six decades worth of protesting. He started protesting in the 1940s in Illinois doing sit-ins. Fifteen years later, he met Martin Luther King during the Montgomery bus boycott. When I was reading up on him, I found this video from the steps of the courthouse in Selma, In 1965, it was during a drive to promote black people to register to vote. We've been trying to get black people to register to vote for like, what, a good 60 years now? Damn. So in this video, Vivian challenged Sheriff Jim Clark on the steps of the courthouse in Selma, Alabama. He said to Clark on video, you can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of the United States, we have the right to do it. The footage shows the sheriff striking Vivian. He falls to the ground and then he gathers himself, stands up and continues his argument. He was that type of man. So he deserves honor. He deserves recognition and he did receive it. In 2013, Obama honored Vivian with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That is America's highest civilian honor. So he did receive his roses while he was alive. That makes me happy. One thing I thought about in discussing the passing of CT Vivian and and John Lewis, they lived to be old men. A lot of heroes, a lot of icons who fought for the civil rights, the black folks who fought for a better America. A lot of folks just did not live to be old men. John Lewis passed at 80, C.T. Vivian passed at 95. They got to live. We talk on here about Black Lives Matter. I always like to mention how black folks are just asking for the acknowledgement that they matter. Not that they get to thrive. Not even to get to pursuit of happiness. To quote Angela Raj, she was on Cuomo about a month ago, and she was like, America promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Black people just trying to get life. We're not even at liberty and pursuit of happiness yet. Like, we just trying to, can you acknowledge, we deserve to live. Just, let's start there. They got to live to be old men. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, so many more. Didn't make it. They were killed. I want to make it sound like, oh, they didn't make it because they just laid it down one day. No, no, no. They They were killed. But these two got to live. I hope they know that their sacrifices were not in vain. As many current problems as America has always had but currently has with race and racism and the reckoning that we're having, again, Apparently we do this like every 30 years, 60s, 90s. But the needle has moved. I hope that John Lewis and C.T. Vivian know that their contributions mattered. I can't believe John Lewis is gone. There is a Coca-Cola brunch every year at CBC, Congressional Black Caucus in D.C., and John Lewis always used to speak and they never have chairs at this event. You end up standing there all dressed up for about three hours. And it's a heel occasion. I would get there late. And then I would wait for John Lewis to speak. Because he was such an amazing orator. Like just the, the cadence of his voice. If you're not familiar, pull up some clips on YouTube. He had an amazing way of, of turning a phrase and making a point. And he has a very distinct voice. Pull up some videos on YouTube and have a listen. You'll understand what I mean. I feel like family died. Speaking of dying, the American death count for COVID, we're hovering at over 140 now. We're pushing to 150. I had a COVID test the other day. I have a project I'm working on, so they required all of us to get COVID tests. I received my results in under 24 hours, no less. I went to the, the VA parking lot off Wilshire. It took all of maybe five minutes. And a good, like, four of that was, like, they had this, like, obstacle course of combs that I had to drive through to get to the actual testing site. So they used the prongs to, to hand me a little package of a swab, a test tube with some fluid in it. And then they asked me with my mask on to cough four times and then take the cotton swab, run it through my mouth for about 30 seconds, Then put the swab in the test tube, put the test tube back in the plastic baggie. And then, like, I rolled my window down and someone new with tongs took the baggie and put it in essentially a trash can with all the other tests. And then I drove on my way. But literally five minutes, I was in and out. I heard that this is totally not the case in many other cities. People in Florida are getting their tests back in about 10 days. I heard New York is doing okay. Maryland, I don't know about the turnaround time for Maryland, but I did hear some interesting news. So, remember, this is early on in the pandemic, maybe like a month in, when the federal government was intercepting tests that governors had ordered. They were going in and seizing the tests. There was this big news story, and not just in Maryland, how Governor Larry Hogan and his wife, Yumi, had gone to Korea, I believe, had negotiated 500,000 tests and they snuck the test into the country to circumvent the seizure by the feds. So after the tests were here, Hogan and his wife do a news conference. Maryland will not be made to suffer by the incompetence of the feds. Great feel good news story. I was on the phone with a friend who works in politics in Maryland, And he was talking about the testing lagging. And I said, how can the testing be lagging? Because didn't the governor go get 500,000 tests? Did they use all 500,000 already? And he was like, them tests ain't work. I said, what you mean them tests ain't work? He said he went and got 500,000 tests. They paid more than they should have for the test because they were in high demand. But I was like, no, but he he went and got the test. He was like, yeah, he went and got tests. It didn't work. Which I was like, bruh. Nobody tested the test. Before y'all spent $9 on them? No one? (sighs) Coronavirus. I'm so sick of this goddamn virus. I'm in this fancy new building with all these amazing amenities that I cannot use. Can't use the gym. I was all excited about the pool. It's heated. Can't use it. The pool is closed until further notice. Womp womp. It does have a good business center. I didn't have internet until yesterday. I'm recording this on Thursday morning. But no complaints. I do, by far, prefer this apartment to my previous one. It's very cute. I've got a walk-in closet in this one, so technically I don't need my armoires, but I love my armoires, so I'm keeping them. I've got a balcony. I go out every morning and I have coffee on my balcony. A lot of folks were very concerned. They were like, you left your mountains? Well, yes, I did. Sort of. The new place has a really cute view. It's downtown LA, so I have the view of some of the skyline. I'm only on the fourth floor, so I don't have a full range, but I've got a good view. When I'm on the balcony, I can look in both directions, and I can see if I look in either direction, left or right, on clear days, I can see the mountains in the distance. So it's fine. So I've still got my mountains. They're just not as close as they were before. But here, I've got the sunset. At the previous loft, I had the sunrise. I also get a nightly light show. I am in a place where it's almost like lit up like Times Square. It's really beautiful. And when I wake up in the morning, the way my bed is positioned, it looks like I'm floating amongst the trees. It's really cute. I really like the new place. My neighbors so far have been pretty good. One of my neighbors, I, he's got to be a DJ. But last Friday from seven to eight, we had like a, a slow jam wind down. Like He was blasting his music, but it was like Sade, Maxwell, Groove Theory, Tevin Campbell. And I was like, yes. I can do loud music when it's music that I actually like. And then the following morning, Saturday morning, because I get up at the crack of dawn. I'm up at like six o'clock every day. Like around seven or so, he was lightly playing Teddy P, my latest, greatest inspiration. So I was out on the balcony drinking my coffee and Teddy P was hitting his falsetto, singing about a woman taking him higher and higher. And I was like, yes, this is good living. I definitely made a good decision moving. I just want the city to reopen. I want mofos to stay indoors and wear their masks and practice social distancing so that all these places that I see when I'm walking around my neighborhood that look so very cute inside, I really would like them to open. What else is going on? I tried to watch the versus with Snoop and DMX. My best clubbing years were the late 90s to the early 2000s. I have danced many a night, sweated out many a weave to Snoop and DMX. I was kind of torn. I don't like Snoop anymore. I like his music. DMX, I pray for. I want to see Earl get his life on track. But I tuned in to the, the Snoop and DMX verses. I spent maybe three minutes there. DMX was feeling the vibe and Snoop was like, yeah, yeah, you know, he's smoking, They had the hearts going up the side. Now, usually the hearts are like different colors. They're like pink and green and blue. And the hearts going up the side were just gray for for Snoop and his smoke. I was like, are y'all serious right now? The music sounded better. I'll give them that. But anyway, so Snoop was like, yeah, where where my ladies at? And DMX was like, where the bitches? And I was like, yeah, I can't. I can't. There was a time when, when listening to music with constant... Bitches and hoes and misogynistic references didn't really bother me. It was was it is it the Martin skit or is it Chris Rock? And we're like, oh, they're not talking about me. Yeah, they were, and yeah, they are. So once he was like, where are the bitches? When two people are in a room and Snoop is the most respectful among them, as a woman, it's a room I don't need to be in. They did their numbers when I was in there. It was probably like four hundred and seventy thousand. I was like, all right. I'm a head out. I heard it was good, though. Like the people who, you know, don't mind rampant misogyny, men and women, were like, oh, my God, it was amazing. The energy, it was great. And I was like, "Eh, okay, sure. Rick Fox has been in the news. He hasn't done anything. He was minding his business. And page six, the gossip column for the New York Post, got a picture of Mr. Fox just looking wild in the wind. He looks like quarantine is occurring, which is fine because quarantine is occurring. The original caption was Rick Fox shows off long, unkempt hair amid coronavirus quarantine. There's a picture of Rick Fox clean shaven with short hair, and then a picture of Rick Fox fully bearded. He's got a beautiful gray beard and just a head full of just wild hair, just looking wild and free. And I was like, unkempt. You trying to shade Rick Fox? Are you serious right now? Let's be clear. Rick Fox is fine as fuck. Wild Rick Fox is like a 9.99 versus clean cut Rick Fox, which is like a 10. There is really no difference here. Be quite honest. If wild Rick Fox got just like a little, just a, just a tiny, just a little, just a light trim of the beard. The wild hair don't bother me. I was thinking that maybe he could pull it up in a little man bun. Or pull it back in a man bun. He's a man of a certain age. Maybe he doesn't wear a high man bun. Maybe he can wear a low man bun. But I think Rick Fox with a man bun would be beautiful. I mean, Rick Fox in any form is beautiful. Wild hair Rick Fox. Clean cut Rick Fox. Rick Fox at 20. Rick Fox at 50. It's motherfucking Rick Fox. Who shades Rick Fox? He didn't even bother anybody. I mean, the least folks could do after they tried to kill him off. Remember when Kobe's helicopter went down? There was all this speculation of who was on board and people were like, Rick Fox was there. And Rick Fox was like, I, I am not dead. Page six got so much negative feedback from its title that they changed it to Rick Fox shows off long flowing hair amid coronavirus quarantine. I'm sorry, I got caught looking at this picture. He looks like a character from The Walking Dead, but not like one of the dead, like one of the survivors. He just looks like wild and free, like he about to hunt some shit and bring it home. Some sexy shit. Rick Fox is fine. Rick Fox is 51. The silver fox. Page six would be ashamed of themselves. trying to bother Rick Fox, fine ass Rick Fox. Joe Biden is in the news, which is a weird thing to say during an election year. There have been weeks in recent months that have passed and no one's heard from Joe Biden. People are like, is Joe still running? Is Joe still with us? But he is in the news this week. He's got to sit down with him and our father, Barack. They're sitting down being besties, dragging Trump. But he's also in the news. I don't know where he said it. But according to reports, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee on Wednesday called President Trump the country's first racist to be elected to the White House. Biden said, we've had racists and they've existed. They've tried to get elected president. He's the first one that has. That ain't true. I mean, without going through the long list of atrocities by U.S. presidents towards people of color, including black people. I mean, who was in charge when they like massacred all the Native Americans? Whoever was in charge when they rounded up Japanese folks and put them in internment camps. That was that's pretty racist. Reagan and his trickle-down economics and cutting all that funding to inner cities, pretty racist. Clinton and the crime bill and prison reform, we're not calling that racist? Just Trump? None of the presidents who actually own slaves, not, not racist? None of those? Oh, what about the one who screened Birth of a Nation, which is still ranked as one of the, if not the, Most racist film ever made. So racist that it was a huge inspiration for the KKK. It was screened at the White House, I believe, by Woodrow Wilson. That wasn't considered racist. This is just the stuff that's popping in my head as I'm speaking. I didn't make a list of racist acts by presidents. I assume it would be quite long. Simone, Simone Sanders. I know Simone. I've known her for years, but I gotta remember, like, she is person of importance, big deal. She is a senior advisor on the Biden campaign. She cleaned him up as per usual in an interview. She acknowledged that although Trump isn't the first racist president, he's unique in modern history. Quote, there have been a number of racist American presidents, but Trump stands out, especially in modern history, because he made running on racism and division his calling card and won. Oh, can we add Bush to our racist presidents? His friendship with Michelle Obama and Trump's grand level of ignorance and incompetence has made history look at GW much more fondly. But I will never forget him taking forever in a fucking day to get down to Katrina and then flying over it, looking down at everybody. That was him and his painting, his candy passing and his excitement when he sees Michelle Obama makes him look very black friendly. But there was a time. I hope he has evolved into a better man than he was. I don't remember much about his dad. I think I must have blocked those years out. I was in high school when Bush was in office. I think I just, I think I blocked it out. The point is, perhaps every president except Barack Obama has some racist shit with him. Trump ain't the first. But as far as Biden's gaffes go, this is pretty light. Wasn't it just last month he was like, if you don't vote Democrat, if you don't vote for me, you're not really black. You're not black enough. Some stupid shit he said in that interview with Charlemagne and I was just like, oh God, you got one job. Don't be Trump. That's why we're voting for you. Trump actually said as much in an interview on Fox. He was like, the people who are voting for me are voting because they like me, because they're enthusiastic about me. He was like, the people who are voting for Biden, it's just because they don't like me. And I was like, well, Broken clocks are right twice a day. I'm not a Biden enthusiast, but that's who I'm voting for. And I'll do everything in my power to get other people to vote for him, too. I just. Yeah. Megan, we need to talk about Meg. Meg the Stallion. I brought her up last week and I said I was going to wait a week to speak about it because it was a new story and we didn't have all the details. It's a week later, and we really don't have many more details. She was shot multiple times. She has said, quote, as a result of a crime that was committed against me and done with the intention to physically harm me. She has not said who shot her. Most people are speculating that it was Tory, Tory Lanez. See, he's a rapper out of Canada. I, don't, I said last week, I don't know this man. He was arrested. He was released, I believe, on $35,000 bond. And those are pretty much the details that we know. There was video that came out. You can see Meg coming out of a car. She appears to be limping. At first, people thought that she cut her foot on some broken glass. But no, it seems she was shot in the foot. Many people had jokes about that. Lots of memes. I saw a screenshot of a bunch of guys saying that Tory had given him the green light to shoot women. I saw lots of commentary saying that's what Meg gets for being a hot girl. And Meg saw a lot of this commentary. She responded on social media, quote, Black women are so unprotected and we hold so many things in to protect the feelings of others without considering our own. This was on Twitter. It might be funny to y'all on the internet or just another messy topic for you to talk about, but this is my real life and I'm real hurt and traumatized. Social media has no lows, so I'm not really surprised that people made fun of a woman being shot. How do I want to put this? Say, like when George Floyd, or the young man in Ferguson, Michael Brown, or Nipsey Hussle, white racists took to the internet. And they could not wait to point out the shortcomings of these men and how they deserved their tragic endings. George Floyd, he had a long arrest record. Michael Brown, just before he was murdered, he'd stolen some cigars from a convenience store. Nipsey Hussle was in a gang. And black folks, by and large, pointed out that even if George Floyd had actually had a $20 bill, that shit was unnecessary. Or with Michael Brown, even if he had actually stolen these cigarettes, or he was walking in the middle of the street, or he spoke greasy to a police officer, none of that should have been a death sentence. Whatever was going on with Nipsey Hussle, he was a good dude, he wasn't committing a crime, and he did not deserve to be gunned down in the street. But then you have this black woman, Meg, who likes to shake her ass, who likes to essentially make music that talks about men the way that men have talked about women for years. They are playthings. They are trophies. They are good for sexual pleasure and finance. But anytime women talk about men the way that they talk about women, it's such a scandal. And men will actually say that, well, because you basically talk about me the way I've always talked about you, now it's a problem. And because you did that, you deserve to be shot. And women who think like you deserve to be shot. And people could say, well, oh, this is just men ranting on the Internet like it's not that serious. And if you've been a woman, a black woman, for any length of time, you know that it is that serious. You get a group of black women together and everybody's got a story about how some guy hollered at them on the street. It escalated from, hey, Miss Lady, to, oh, you not interested? Well, fuck you then, bitch. That's why your ass ugly anyway. Dudes run up on you. Dudes grab you. Dudes spit at you. All these things have happened to me. And I'm pretty nice about it. I've Oh, I have a man. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not interested. Oh, I'm just trying to get to... Or I just keep walking and curse the fuck out. Crazy shit. You no know, women who've been assaulted, like straight out, like hit. Women who men thrown bottles at. So the idea that men are just going to escalate to, you've done something to piss me off, and now I'm just going to shoot you in the pinky toe on some real life Harlem night shit, it's not far-fetched. It's actually crazy and alarming to hear that men just speak so freely about wanting to harm women that way. But I brought up the racist because just how like white racists can't see the humanity in black people, that's how sexist men, misogynistic men, look at women. To the point that you would be like, oh, I heard this woman's lyrics, and because the lyrics of her music, they actually sound exactly like the lyrics of the music I've been listening to for years, but now it's about me, so now this bitch deserves to get shot. This is a woman. This is a person. She didn't do anything to deserve to be shot by some dude. She's a performing artist and now her future is in jeopardy because she can't perform. And without even knowing anything more about the story, all you know is this man, this black man shot this black woman and it's a joke. It's funny. She deserved it. Really? Black male misogynists? Sexists? Incels? One of my friends, I saw it come across my timeline. She said, it's time to discuss black male incels. I saved it. I didn't get a chance to read it. Remind me and we'll discuss it next week. But a lot of black men really just do not like black women. Sex with black women, sure. Black women who cook for them, who clean their houses, who provide emotional support, who they can take from, sure. They can access your resources, you're great. If you ask for anything in return, including basic respect, Not so much. Does none of this sound familiar? I'm always amazed how so many black men don't ever make the connection in how they think of black women and how they treat black women with how racist white folks treat them. They'll deny it to the hilt. But the exact same lack of humanity, the exact same lack of compassion, the exact same lack of fuck giving that white people give black men... Or black people in general. Black men. The misogynist and the sexist and the incels. It's the exact same hatred. Just directed toward a different group. It's sick. Meg said that she had surgery. She is expected to make a full recovery. I hope that she does. I hope that as she physically heals. She also is able to emotionally heal. I imagine being out with somebody that you trusted And they flip on you to the point that they shoot you. It's got to be a huge mind fuck. I was about to say, speaking of mind fucks, but I don't think this counts. Andrew Gillum. You remember that he once ran for the governor of Florida. He did not win. Poor Florida got the, the mofo in charge who's killing them right now. But... Andrew Gillum, before he ran for governor, he was the mayor of Tallahassee. He lost that election by a very narrow margin. I want to say like less than 1%. And according to him, it sent him into a tailspin. The backstory here, if you don't recall, one day at the height of COVID-19, the first height, not the current height. He is discovered by police in a Miami hotel room, passed out. Naked on the bathroom floor in his own vomit, there is a male prostitute present. He OD'd, which is why the police and the ambulance were called. And they came to the room and they found the prostitute and Andrew in the state I just described. They're both in a room with a ton of liquor and meth. Didn't look too good. Didn't look too good at all. Story makes the news, but it's hardly the scandal that it could have been because everyone's focused on the plague that's killing people at like a thousand and change a day. So people are mostly focused over there and it's just like, oh, sir, we ain't got time for you and your shenanigans. That was like four months ago. Andrew announced that he had a drinking problem and he was going to rehab. And I said at the time and I was like, bro, just go on, disappear for like a year and change. Come back a new man cleaned up in service to God. Tell us about how you've become a whole new person and I'll be ready to hear you out again. Just before Florida went to complete shit show. I was like, honest to God, if you can clean your shit up, I don't really care who you have the sex with. I want you to stop drinking because that's clearly an issue for you. And if you were involved in these drugs that were in the room, which he said he was just drunk. He didn't do no drugs. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. That story seems a little sketchy to me, but I wasn't there. So I don't know what you did or you didn't do. I said then, I said, if he can clean himself up and he can come back, I'd actually like to see him back on the national stage. I mean, as far as scandals go, the gay escort was of age. The gay is not an issue. I want you to live in your truth. If you're gay, be gay. If you're going to be married, please don't cheat on your wife. I think you got some moral ethical issues there. But if we're not voting for people because they cheated on their spouse, we wouldn't be voting for a whole lot of people. If he could stop with the drinking and the drugs and figure out his personal life. He could currently run on on like the same proposition that Biden is, which is, hey, I'm not as bad as the current person in charge. So Andrew Gillum, he returned from self-imposed exile. He uploaded a video on his Instagram page. He seemed to be sitting in his home office. He had on his wedding ring. He had pictures of his wife and children in the background. And he spoke for 10 minutes about his battle with alcoholism. It runs in his family. He talked about his depression. He said he went on a tailspin after he lost the election. He talked about going to therapy. He talked about the much better place that he that he's in currently. I guess he's going to have a book coming out. A lot of this seemed like a setup for a book deal, which I'd read his book. As someone who's battled their own issues with depression, I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic, but there was definitely a period of my life which I drank too damn much. It was good to see that he was doing well. I can honestly say that I hadn't thought twice about him since he disappeared. And that's not to say that I don't care. It's to say that there's so much going on that this story that happened four months ago feels like two years ago. I will also say that it's good to see that he's doing well. It's good to see that he's doing the work. I want him to go away for at least another eight months. He sounds good, he looks good, but sounding good and feeling good and looking good are a new concept for him. Whatever events in his life led him to being passed out naked drunk on a hotel room floor in a room full of pills with a male prostitute, that was not something that happened overnight. There was a lot in his life that led up to that moment, and it's not something you can fix with four months. You can begin the journey. You can make headway into the journey. Learning the tools and knowing the right words to say to yourself, it's important. The challenge is not learning what to do and learning what to say when you're good. The challenge is is to be heading toward another bad place and still being able to implement all of those things. And it's not something you can learn in four months. The same way it took you forever to get to the worst of yourself, it takes you a while to get to the best of yourself as well. To unlearn all those bad habits, it takes a while, and it takes more than four months. I I think one of the myths about growth, doing better, self-care, is people think it's that, that diagonal arrow that starts at the bottom and just goes straight up. Everything is just improvement on improvement on improvement, and you're doing nothing but getting better and better and better. Straight line to success. That's not how it works. Becoming your better self is a process, and it's ups and downs. You crawl, you learn to take baby steps, and you stumble. You make a series of great decisions, and then the wrong trigger hits you on the wrong day. and You tumble. Now, the people who are very good at growth and people who are very good at turning themselves around know how to fall and how to get back up. It's a very rare person who can just say, you know what? I've been using alcohol or sex or food or exercise or whatever all of my life. I've been using it in dangerous ways. And then one day I just stop cold turkey. It's a process. Even though he looks great, because he did. He looked great. He grew his hair a little longer. He looked fresh in the face like he's been drinking his water. He looked great. He sounded good. Take a little more time. I'm not going to put a timeline on it. I'm just saying it's someone who's had to rebuild their life is someone who's been down to their last 5% maybe. When I got back to Maryland, I was so messed up. But it's someone who's had to rebuild themselves from almost scratch. That process was like two and a half years. And that's just my process. I'm not saying anybody else has to abide by my timeline. But I do know for a fact, you can't recover fully in four months. You just can't. Ask anyone who's hit rock bottom. They're going to tell you about a couple years. Anybody, whatever your issue was, you just don't recover in four months. So great to see him. I'd like to see him again in about a good eight months. And I wish him well on his journey to recovery. A lot of people are going through it right now. Nick Cannon, we talked about him last week. He made some comments that were anti-Semitic. And he was let go of all Viacom properties. He lost his show, while and Out, on MTV, which he was like, it's a billion-dollar brand. It is. And MTV about to keep making that money off of it. He will keep his job as the host of The Masked Singer, which is a huge hit on Fox, which is good. He said some things that he shouldn't have. He swiftly apologized for them. I don't want to see him lose all his livelihood. He felt people had turned against him. He tweeted... It sounded to many people like a, like a suicide note. He said something like, goodbye, enjoy earth. Sir, where you going? Where, where you going, friend? Don't, don't Don't leave earth. Stay with us. I know it's a lot of opinions. I know it's a check lost. But better times will come. This too shall pass. Since he's tweeted that he has recorded a new podcast episode, I saw that he was sitting down with a rabbi. I've never listened to Nick Cannon's podcast. I didn't start because of the controversy. But I hope that he's doing better. I don't want to see anything happen to Nick Cannon. Tamar, I don't know all the details about this one. Tamar was in the hospital for a suicide attempt. I don't follow her very closely. I have no idea what's going on with her, nor will I speculate. I think if you're trying to commit suicide, you're depressed in some form or fashion. So let me just bottom line that. But people become depressed for all sorts of reasons. And very rarely is it the ones that are obvious to other people. People be like, oh my God, you were depressed because you were going through a divorce. And I was like, no, I'm going through a divorce because I was depressed. Because the relationship was unfortunate. And there were other things going on in my life that compounded with what was going on in my household made things unbearable. I felt far less depressed once I was no longer in the household. So you really have no idea what could be triggering to other people. So I won't speculate on that for Tamar. Apparently, the story is that she had overdosed on pills and she had left a suicide note. When I hear about people who are battling depression, who attempt suicide or... Or actually kill themselves. I have a, it's not a survivor's remorse, but it is triggering. It does remind me of the very dark place that I was in for a couple years and how at the time, ah, fuck it, how at the time, it's like your mind plays tricks on you. Like you just, you can't see beyond anything current and you can kind of try to rationalize your way through it and you could say trouble won't last always and it won't always be like this and there I've read about other people who have who've lived this experience and they've done okay but you just you just can't see it for yourself and it's really really hard one of the things that kept me during that time I don't know if I've talked about this on here when I was in High school, going into ninth grade, I believe. A friend, Shalik Alexander, she was 14 years old. She killed herself right before school started. And she was very smart. She was 14. I want to say going into the 11th grade, she'd skip two grades. She liked basketball. She loved music. She was funny as hell. I just remember she would say the most random things and the whole lunch table would fall out laughing. For my entire life, there's never been more than, I'd say, maybe two weeks. And this happened, like, what, 28 years ago. Maybe two weeks that I haven't thought about her. Usually it's out here, like, a good R&B song. Like, she loved Jodeci. The last time I saw her alive, because I went to the funeral. There was an open casket, but I didn't go down to it. The last time I saw her alive, she was leaving early to go to a Jodeci concert. So... Very often when I hear Jodeci songs or I hear just like some really good R&B, I'll think like, oh, Shalik would have liked that. And just over the years, having various experiences, usually things that are like, you know, really good, like, oh, like, this is dope. I'll think, I wish Shalik could have seen this. And for me, her passing gave me a perspective of whatever she was feeling in that moment I don't know exactly why she felt it, but I I know what the feeling is. But I always think that, you know, maybe if she'd lived a little longer, she would have lived long enough not to still feel whatever that was. I hope that if there are, and I know there probably are, folks who are listening and they might be in a bad place, they might be depressed, they might be in really bad head spaces, whatever they're dealing with, This too shall pass. I don't know when. I know time, therapy, for me, God, exercise, getting outdoors helps. I said therapy once, but I'm going to say it again. Whatever you're going through today, there's brighter days ahead if you can endure long enough to see them. If you are willing to seek help, professional help, and if you are willing to just hold on, just make it through today, we'll work on tomorrow, another day, that's that's a good enough goal. It's hard. I know. Just hold on. I promise you, it gets better. There was a time in my life where I, I could not fathom that. And to think back on it now, it seems like a whole different person. Because it was. I know when you're in the midst of it, you can't see it. It seems so impossible. And just to be clear, I'm not crying Because I'm in pain. I'm crying. Because I'm in a much better place. And I'm thinking about how sad I was. And I'm remembering that pain. But I'm not feeling it. Ah. We've been talking about mental health. Mm. Give me a second. We've been talking about mental health today. And perhaps the most... Prominent mental health story in the news is with Kanye West. A couple weeks ago, Kanye announced he was running for president, although he's ineligible to get on the ballot in most states. But nonetheless, Kanye did a Kanye-esque announcement. He announced he was running for president. And this week, he held his first campaign event. He chose South Carolina for the kickoff. He had many things to say at that event. One of them was his declaration that Harriet Tubman, quote, never actually freed the slaves. She just had the slaves go work for other white people. I would note, and maybe it's just me, that there is perhaps a distinct difference between working for free on a plantation with no ownership of anything except your thoughts and, you know, actual freedom, no matter who you're working for. Freedom freedom matters a lot. Harriet Tubman, for the record, freed herself, and then she went back between 7 and 13 times. No one's really sure on the number, but she went back a whole lot of times to free a whole lot of other people. Her biography from the 1860s, she said she freed about 70 people. Others have estimated she freed about 300. I love Harriet Tubman. She is a personal hero of mine. But I'm going to tell you now, if I escape slavery, I'm going to ask everybody before I leave, do you want to go? Now, if you'd like to go with me, then let's get our ish together. Let's hash a plan and let's go. But if you decide to stay, I can't say that I'm going back. My own mama, I'd pray for her, but I ain't going back. You had your choice. I might put some money together and send somebody to go buy mama, but I ain't going back in the slave territory. Not for anybody. Remember Queen and Slim came out and I was like, oh, there's, a, there's certain people I'd get in the car for. They're worth risking it all. There were three people. My mama, my best friend since I was 12, and my male bestie. My dad wouldn't even ask. Well, so it wouldn't even be a question. And he'd figure it out. I ain't going back into slavery for none of them. None. Die for? Sure. Go back into slavery? Never. So, like I said, Harriet Tubman could have just saved herself, never going back, and I'd be fine. The fact that she went back a bunch of times, girl, ma'am, put some respect on her name. Same rally. Kanye, in between tears, said some other disturbing things. One of them was about the time he asked Kim to abort North. This their oldest child. I'm like, sir, you could have kept that information to yourself. This is the point where it's most necessary to point out that Kanye suffers from bipolar disorder. And while it doesn't excuse the things that he says, it needs to be mentioned so that you can put the things that he says in context. Now, many folks have deduced that Kanye West, who has been very public about his mental health issues, about not taking his meds, they deduced that he was having what folks call an episode, if you will. Many people asked, where is your wife? Why is your wife not helping you? Other people suggested that he needs to be committed to an institution for his own good. As it would turn out from the where is Kim crowd, Kim was trying to help her husband. Kanye said as much in a series of tweets. He said, quote, Kim tried to bring a doctor to lock me up. He was not happy about that. He had more thoughts on Twitter. He claimed that the movie Get Out was based on him. A lot of folks had that joke when the movie came out. He said, if I get locked up like Mandela, y'all will know why. The Mandela comparison, that's thats coming from the same man who's compared himself to Jesus. So, all right. Kanye's behavior alarmed a lot of people, one of them being Dave Chappelle. Dave flew out to Wyoming to be with him you might recall, maybe like 15 years ago or so, Dave Chappelle, it's weird in retrospect. I think people think of Dave Chappelle as having mental health issues, but the reason that they think he had mental health issues is kind of, is racist the right word? Dave Chappelle had the Dave Chappelle show on Comedy Central and it started off with a bang. Like it was huge, huge. I remember being on the train headed to work the morning after the little John sketch, like the 815 train into the city. So this is all like professional working people and somebody yelling, what? And the whole train just bust into laughter because everyone had watched the Chappelle show the night before. It was this huge cultural thing. And Comedy Central offered Dave Chappelle $50 million to keep the show going. And Dave Chappelle infamously walked away from it. And people were like, that nigga's crazy. He said that he felt like people were laughing at him and not with him. He left and he went to Durban, South Africa to clear his mind. And people were like, you left and went to South Africa to clear your mind. And I think the idea was that Dave left and went to some primitive environment with inferior medical care or accommodation. And they were like, you are this huge star. You've walked away from all this money. And now you've gone to this primitive place, which we just don't understand. Dave Chappelle must be crazy. I hadn't been to any part of Africa at the time that this all happened. In 2011, I went to South Africa for the first time. And then I went back in 2012 and I went to Durban. Let me tell you something about Durban. Durban is like Durban is like the Miami meets Vegas of South Africa. Johannesburg is dope. Johannesburg is popping. They move fast like New York. They stunt like Atlanta and it has the sprawl of LA. But Johannesburg is landlocked. Usually when people travel from the states to go to South Africa, you go to Johannesburg, you go to I can't remember the the name of the really famous wildlife park. It's Starts with a K, I think, or is it a C? But that's where you go if you want to see the big five. The other major city is Cape Town. Cape Town is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in the world. Cape Town shares water with Antarctica, so the water's freezing. You can go to the beach, but you can't get in the water. If you want to beach, you go to Durban. And in Durban, them folks be living. I wanted to go to Durban largely because Dave Chappelle went. I was in Johannesburg. It was maybe like a two-hour plane ride to get to Durban. And I was like, well, why not? Since I'm already on the other side of the world, let me go see what Durban is. Durban has all the casinos. Durban has the crazy parties. I didn't even go to any of them. I was staying with a friend of a friend. And she was like, oh, she was like, I don't really do the big party scene. And she was like, but I got some things you'll like. So she would go to work all day. I would go to the beach. I would meet her back at the house. And we would go for sundowners. And we'd go to these private clubs. There was like a bunch of them. It was up on a cliff. Looking down over the beach, the sun is setting in the distance, and we're just sitting in like this posh environment drinking champagne. That was my evening every night that I was in Durban. And when you drive around Durban, like it's just as modern as anything that you'll see in America. To put this in greater context, remember Essence had its first international Essence Fest, and they decided to do it in South Africa? They didn't do it in Johannesburg, and they didn't do it in Cape Town. They did it in Durban, because that's where all the hotels are. That's where Dave Chappelle went. And people were like, oh, my God, he's crazy. No, sir, just wanted to get the hell away from everybody. So he went to the other side of the world and probably lived it up. Everyone was like, oh, my God, Dave Chappelle's living in a hut, getting inferior medical care. No, Dave Chappelle was probably in, like, I don't know, somebody's palatial-ass house if he was receiving medical care, getting world-class service for cheap. Dave Chappelle went to Durban and was living his best life. I say all that to say, Dave Chappelle knows a little about people thinking that you've lost your mind. So he hopped on a plane and he flew to Wyoming with Kanye. He got there and there was at least four or five other black men who were there with Kanye. I saw earlier today when I was doing a final search before doing the podcast, I saw that Dame Dash. I don't know if Dame Dash has had a public episode, but another person who people have thought, oh, he's lost his mind. But Dame Dash went to hang out with Kanye and I was like, this is good. This is good because very many people were saying Kanye needs help. Someone help him. And at the very least, Dame Dash and Dave Chappelle and those other few black men that were in the picture showed up to help Kanye. Sometimes you just need. In a man's case, a community of men to come sit with you and talk with you and get you right. And I'm not saying right to deal with his mental health issues because that. It requires professional care. But sometimes you just need folks that can sit with you and get you to a place where you're okay enough to seek help. And the brotherhood can do that for you. It works the same way with women. Sometimes as a woman, you just need a circle of your sisters to sit and speak with you. And that just gets you to a better place where you can seek help. Sometimes that's all you need. So I'm glad that these black men have shown up for Kanye. Despite that, Despite the brotherhood, Kanye was not done. He had more tweets to add. He said that he's been trying to get divorced from Kim for two years since she met with Meek at the Waldorf for for prison reform. Just FYI, Meek Mills has responded that there is no truth to that assertion whatsoever. Kim, who has received much scrutiny because of the behavior of her husband, she also released a statement. She said, quote, as many of you know, Kanye has bipolar disorder. Anyone who has this or has a loved one in their life who does knows how incredibly complicated and painful it is to understand. This was a statement that she shared on Instagram. She noted that she has avoided speaking publicly about Kanye's mental health out of respect for her kids as well as her husband's right to privacy. She said, those who are close with Kanye know his heart and understand his words sometimes do not align with his intentions. Those that understand mental illness or even compulsive behavior know that the family is powerless unless the member is a minor. People who are unaware or far removed from this experience can be judgmental and not understand that the individual themselves have to engage in the process of getting help no matter how hard family and friends try. She said that her husband is, quote, brilliant and complicated, and he is a person simply struggling to deal with his mental illness at times. She asked for compassion and empathy so that her family can get through this. Many and my friends were having online discussions or offering commentary on Kanye's mental health. I was in the subthread of a friend and I saw commentary by Basi Ikpi. If you're not familiar with Basi, she is a Nigerian-born American spoken word poet, writer, and mental health advocate. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling author, I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying. It's a collection of essays which explores her life through the lens of mental health struggles with anxiety and bipolar disorder. So she had some perspectives on Kanye and the discussions that we have about mental health in general that had never occurred to me. This is something that she deals with. This is something that she specializes in. So I wanted to invite her to Ratchet and Respectable to share her perspective. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Basi Ikpi. Hi, Basi. This is Demetria. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I wanted to reach out to you. We have a mutual Facebook friend and I saw some of your comments on his discussion about Kanye and uh, mental illness and bipolar and all that's been going on with him lately. And you had a perspective that I hadn't thought about. Mental health is something that you've talked about very openly. I followed you on Facebook for years. You talk about it in your poetry. You talked about it in a New York Times bestseller. So I wanted to just speak with you about someone who deals with it, who knows more about it than I do, um, just to get like your insight on maybe how we should be talking about Kanye in the right way. I guess my first question for you is so many people are saying that where's Kim, where's his family, where are his friends, someone needs to help them. Why is our approach to asking where's Kim, why is that wrong?
1: What we know about about social media over the last decade or so is though we have um, proximity to people, we don't actually have access to them the way that we think we do. So all this, um, where's Kim, where's the family, somebody help him, somebody help him who, like how, there's nothing concrete about that. So what it says to me as someone who lives with with with, um, with mental health issues or bipolar disorder, what I hear is I don't want to actually do anything because there are people in my life that I could do things for. So if I put it out there that um that I think that someone should do something, someone should do something is very open. Um, it says I care but it also says that I don't have any work. I have no stakes in this. I think that especially with Ms. Kanye it's two sides of the same coin which is there are people who are like there's no excuse for his behavior just because he has A, B, C, and D does not mean that he gets the right to say whatever he has to say. So those people who are dismissing him and dismissing his or, or taking his, his diagnosis out of the conversation what that does is say that he doesn't have permission to have whatever illness he has because it doesn't work with what you want people to think. And then on the other side of it are people who still don't get it but need to, to signal that they're somehow more empathetic. But that empathy does not come with any kind of structure and that empathy is not being, uh, is not being extended to the people they actually have access to. They're projecting that empathy onto someone who will literally never hear it. Um, It's the same place where people are calling for accountability. He has to be held accountable for what he says. He cannot get away with this. He has to learn to set it up. He's not going to hear you. Your cousin hears you. Your sibling hears you. The person that follows you on Twitter or on Facebook hears you. And they are the ones that that you're talking to while you're projecting and saying that you're talking about that guy over there. And that guy over there, Kanye, is never going to hear that.
0: What is... I guess, quote unquote, the appropriate way to respond to what's happening with Kanye right now. We've seen this this rally that he did in, in South Carolina. He's on Twitter, literally as we speak, tweeting all sorts of things. His wife put out a statement this morning saying that they're trying to help him. What is the right way to discuss what's going on?
1: I'm not a doctor, so I can't I can't say the right way. I know that, um, anecdotally, from my perspective, and I've been in 2010. I had a very Twitter based um, manic episode that resulted in a in in a hospitalization. But the difference between me and a Kanye is that Kanye has the space to call people. He has the resource. He has the access, and he has unlimited funds. So, whereas my domain was tweeting for 20 hours straight and, and posting all kinds of things on 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 social media, on Facebook or what have you. He can do that, but because of who he is, people are paying attention to it and they're not giving him. I'm trying to, to, to word this in a way that isn't um, that doesn't assume a lot of things about about him. When you talk about the stigmas that come with mental illness. As much as people over the years have said uh, that you know uh, they support mental health awareness, um, they understand what people are going through, they themselves have depression or anxiety. Depression and anxiety are the easy ones to deal with. Um, people are able to pity you. And I've always felt that as far as people are able to pity you or make, or, or, or feel sorry for you, that's the extent of their empathy. So here you have someone like Kanye, who is rich, very rich, who is a known asshole. That's just been his reputation since he stepped on the scene, which is someone that you have to struggle to like. The conversation is never about his illness. It's always about the things that he said as though the things that he says can be divorced from the illness. Because what happens is that it takes away his impulse control. It takes away his filter. He has the rapid and pressured speaking, the paranoia, my paranoia is, oh my God, I think all of my friends are upset with me. I'm going to call 200 times to see if they block me yet. And then I'm going to call 200 more times because those 200 times probably annoys them enough to block me. That's my thing. Kanye throws a rally. And Kanye spouts his paranoia because he's being fed, you know, just the stuff that's going on in the fact that he's like the right-wing darling now. He's being fed these conspiracies, and that is aiding and making his illness make more sense to him. Every time we talk about him, we have to contextualize it. It always has to come. There always has to be a conversation going on simultaneously about specifically bipolar disorder because it's, the, it's one of the ones that is the most misunderstood. So every time we talk about Kanye, every time Kanye does something, it has to be contextualized in the frame of this diagnosis that he has said that he has he says that he doesn't take his medication all of those things are relevant to what we are seeing and that he's showing us he's just so much more visible than anyone else he's probably the most visible person with bipolar disorder in the world
0: for those of us who have friends and family who are dealing with mental health what is the best way to help them well the first thing is that
1: just the standard you can't help anyone who doesn't Um, who doesn't want the help. And I I think that's the situation that that, I've been told Kanye is in. But what you do is make yourself available. The people need to know that when they are ready, you are someone that they can come to. You are someone that is present for them. One of the things that I, 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 I tell people is don't ask someone how they are or don't tell them how they are. Ask, how can I support you? Because even if at that moment, they don't have the language or the response. They know that when they have that moment of clarity, when they really feel like they are down, they'll remember that you said, how can I support you? And know that you're someone who protects them and who will get them to a place where they can they can accept the help. We don't have uh, access to private jets, but James Chappelle hopping on a jet and going to go see him that, to me, I, I almost cried because that's what you want. You want someone who will see you, um, not someone who will attack you, not someone who is threatening to throw you, you know, in, in a hospital, but someone who is just present for you. Someone you know that you can turn to
0: when it really starts to get scary. I love that. I've been through my own issues terrible places in my life, and the people who dropped everything just to be like, you okay, sis. It makes a huge, huge difference. Conversely, I also tell people that they can't
1: can't ignore their own mental wellness in order to take care of someone else. So there's a difference between being present and being an enabler, or being someone who takes it upon themselves to to make sure another person is okay because there is a responsibility. And again, I say that from someone who who, who who works on her mental health literally every single day. It is my responsibility to make sure that I'm okay. And it's my responsibility to, to, to do the work so that other people don't worry about me. And that's something that I have to do for myself. So if I'm ever in a space where I am, and I have
0: a minor form of a, a smaller, a, not Smaller,
1: which is what I'm looking for. Less intense. Bipolar two is more. Yeah, less intense, right? It's less intense than a bipolar one. And I don't, you know, I don't know the, the intricacies of anyone else's diagnosis, but I do know that 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 my wellness is my responsibility. But I know that I can count on others. Like there are times when, just a couple of weeks ago, I was posting a lot about insecure, and I have friends who will text me and say, you're posting a lot about Insecure. You're talking about it a lot. Are you okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, girl, I'm fine. I'm just obsessed with this show because that's how we've established that I've got people who who can see and, 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 and I give them the, the right and the, and the space to say, are you good? And I can respond in time and I know that I can trust them, which is what I, what I said earlier. So... You have to take care of yourself while you're taking care of other people and you have to know when to back up. And when I say back up, I mean you have to know when to to say, I'm here, I'm here to support you, but I'm not going to go in and get you because I can't. It's okay to say I cannot do this right now. It's a softer boundary because of, of how difficult it is for people who are experiencing episodes to step out of it. I can do only this much. I have doctors that I can call for you. I have people that you can talk to. Um, I've heard people say that they've given people my book because it helps them know that they're, that there's someone who has gone through what they're going through and has found a way to, I don't know, write a book and live a life um, while constantly managing it. And I think that a lot of that is also about uh, a hopelessness and feeling like the way that you are are at that moment is the way that you're always going to be, and I think that honoring how that feels in the moment, but then also saying this is what is also possible um, and reminding people of that uh, is is, is really, really important because once the mind, once the brain starts telling you all these things that are influenced by the illness, you need someone who can be that port in that light and say, I I, I see what you're experiencing. I feel what you're telling me, but let me show you, let me tell you what's on the other side of this because there is something
0: on the other side. Yeah, that's so important. One more question while I have you. Something else that people tend to say is he needs to take his meds or they need to get him locked up. Take his meds, I think is easy. You can't force someone to do that. But in terms of locking someone up, I think a lot of us are familiar with the idea of like a 5150 or a 72 hour hold, and we really don't know what that means or what is required to get that to happen.
1: Well, I, I don't know the, the the laws of it, but I do know that it is very difficult. I, I, I bulk at, and this is something that I've seen over the last couple of weeks, which is people who are who are very staunchly prison abolitionists who are you know pro. Getting Kanye locked up, and it's the same system. It's the same system. It's the same energy around it. I, I think that if I think that when someone's a danger to themselves and others, there uh, there uh, are set of rules that exist um, because you have to protect your, you have to protect that person from themselves. I don't think that that's necessary all the time. I think that. I think it's dangerous to have that be at the top of the list when we're talking about helping people. Um, There are are places and institutions, for lack of a better word, institutions, that are safer spaces, that are about wellness, and they're about taking care of the person and not just holding them down until they get over whatever it is they're going through. Um, There's a story that I just got. uh, I was just informed of um, a girl by the name of Soraya Reese um, in Oregon, she was taken off her medication by a pediatrician who said that she didn't need it. And of course, four days later, she has a psychotic break and um, started having hallucinations. And uh, I think she was they, her parents found her with matches about to burn the burn a part of the carpet. Um, they called a wellness center and that person from the wellness center called the police and that 13-year-old girl has been in, in, in juvenile detention for a year wow. because somebody decided that prison and, and, and locking her up um, for her safety was better than getting her treatment. So I'm always very treatment-based. I'm all about finding the thing that gets people to a space where they accept the treatment or where they know that there's something has to be done. And I don't believe, personally, that, that that locking folks up is the answer. I know that I've benefited twice from being hospitalized, but that's much different than, than what
0: people say and what they mean when they say 5150. Thank you for that that clarification. And I hadn't heard the story about that um, that young girl. I'll look that up. That's... Yeah. Horrifying. Yeah,
1: it, it's terrible. And I, I, I just, I was on Twitter the other night, and I saw someone, like, post about it. It is one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard. Um, this young biracial girl in a white, small white town in Oregon, and the levels of racism and of uh, 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 corruption and everything that has got this little girl who's 14 years old, um, serving 11 years for not doing something like it's, it's it, it my mind boggles um but i'm i'm doing everything i can to to link kelsey and shannon um soraya's mom with people who can fund a documentary or just to get the story out um, and get the the change.org petition signed so they can reopen the case and get her some real help and get her some get her out
0: get her out um, basically god bless you for for helping for doing the work is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you've seen people talking about, discussing? Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the discussion to share with the listeners? I,
1: I, I think that it bothers me how much of compassion and empathy is predicated on how much you like the person is being offered to. I, I, I can only look at the people around the conversation and what it means to them to hear and see that they have to be you know, a perfect victim. Much like we talked about, you know, in sexual assault cases where the the, the the victim has to be perfect and have absolutely no flaws in order to, be, to receive justice or to receive compassion and empathy. I was talking to a friend of mine and I said that this really feels like the I don't see color version of mental illness, which is you have to you have to be a good one for people to care about what happens to you. And I think that's something that we really need to think about and, and, and talk about. Uh, Nyla Burton on Twitter is having these great conversations and saying how having to always disavow what Kanye says in order to say that you care. Saying, well, I don't agree with him about A, B, C, and D, but, you know what I mean, like having to always make that be the opening statement, it says more about think deserves compassion than it does about the compassion you're offering. Yeah. And that's something that people really need to do, need to really examine and think about what their purpose is when they do, when they do that.
0: So if you're gonna offer compassion, just offer the compassion and, and keep it going. Just
1: offer, yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm not gonna force anyone to care, but know how your compassion is coming across. And if there's if there's a limited store of grace, then you never have grace. By the way, people hear you. Kim's not hearing you. Kanye's never going to hear you. But again, the people around you do and see, and it it does take a toll on how they see themselves and whether or not they're worthy of 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 great compassion or even forgiveness. I think it's a huge thing. I know that at my worst, um, my nightmare was always that. I would never be forgiven. I would always be the lowest. Um, I'd always be judged by the lowest point. And that is another thing that, that keeps people from getting help because they don't want to know what it would be like for them to be thrown away. That's, that's the fear that you're so broken, you're so damaged, you're so useless that people can just decide and they no longer care about what happens to you. And again, Kanye is not going to see that, but the people around you do see that. And, and that, is, that is a large barrier um, when it comes to seeking treatment. That's where the stigma actually lies
0: for people. Thank you so much for your insight and for sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you for
0: having me. There were so many times in that conversation that I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. So good. Thank you, Bossy, for visiting Ratchet and Respectable. Much appreciated. So that is this week's episode. We'll be back next week. It may be late next week, just to give you a heads up. I have a project that I'm working on, and it's going to take up all of my time. So I'll try to get a podcast up on Thursday. It's probably going to happen on Friday instead. But if in between this episode and next, you need some Ratchet and Respectable in your life, Please follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas. That's on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to Ratchet and Respectable on whatever platform you're listening on. It all counts. That way, you will be first to know as soon as a new episode drops. That is everything. And I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye.